Hi, everyone. Um, we heard early on that content is king. As a, as a journalist, I believe content may be king, but context is King Kong. The explanation behind that is that whereas content is great and content may be interesting on its own, when you put it into the broader context, you, get it, you understand its true nature. But more importantly, as a writer, when you have a look at the context, you actually see the big story. Like King Kong, it is the big story. And the reason I put that picture up is because, in a way, that captures the essence of radio up until about, I'd say about 2002, 2003, early 2000s. And what it is, you've got this central father figure, and he is telling a story to the people, and they're absolutely enraptured. They really are. They're hanging on his every word. You can't really see it because of the lights, but... If you have a look at their faces, they're absolutely enraptured. They can't believe they're hanging on his every word. And especially, and hopefully you can actually see it, this young lady here, I'm going to call her Betty Sue, because she's going to crop up a little bit later on in the presentation. But if you can see her, look at her. She is leaning in, leaning forward, listening to what he says, and she wants to know what is going to happen next. Now, in order to put a bit of context into the story, I'm going to present you with a bit of a confession. I have a very, very passionate love-hate relationship with radio in this country. Do you want to just leave the door open so people can just come in and out to the thing? And it dates back to April uh, 1981. And I was at university, and I was in my second year studying uh, clinical psychology. And uh, a couple of my friends dared me to go for an edition of the campus radio station. It was called uh, Dome Radio. And in those days, campus radio is different to campus radio now. It was, in fact, a glorified PA system. They didn't broadcast on air. What they did is they broadcast through a, a series of landlines, through to speakers at the refectories and various other buildings. And I never even considered the whole idea of getting involved in radio. But the reason I did apply and the reason I did take up their offer or their dare to get involved was because I thought it would be a great way to pick up girls. I thought it was really cool to say, I'm a DJ. And I thought it would be a great way, because I was incredibly, incredibly shy. I was paralyzed by shyness. And I thought if I could say something like, I was a radio DJ, then women would be interested in me. Did it work? I'll tell you later. So what I did is I went up, did the audition, and my hands were shaking, and I sat down, and I put on, and at that stage, Dome Radio was basically a bunch of potheads playing Peter Tosh. They were stuck into one small room. The place reeked of ganja. Great place to work. Not very good in terms of productivity. And I sat down and I put on Stevie, uh, Steve Winwood's While You See a Chance, and I flicked the mic switch, and I heard this buzzing in my ears on the headphones. And from that moment on, I knew that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And to cut a long story short, what we did is we... We staged a bit of a coup, we dumped the potheads, we decided we we're going to turn this into a viable radio station. And I was appointed station manager, and then what I did is I put in place a whole series of regulations to make sure that this became viable. I put together playlists, I put together schedules. Then what we did is we started disciplining and training the people who got involved. We, next thing you know, we started getting a lot more impact and input from people who are listening to us. 
more importantly, the record companies, they would give us about two or three records a week. They suddenly realized that their music was going up and down the charts. There was a regular scheduling. So I'd go around to radio stay, at least go around to the record companies. Instead of two or three records, we started getting 25 records. And then I made sure that we recorded our very first advert. It was for Adam's Bookstore. That led to others, and next thing you know, we started generating an income. We got to generate an income. We started buying more equipment, better equipment, bigger amps, better speakers. We also then started investing into a mobile unit. The mobile unit made more money, and so we invested it into the radio station. We also got involved in the setting up of other campus radio stations, one in uh, uh, what is now DUT, another one a university in Peter Marisburg. And the whole time, I was absolutely fascinated with how to grow radio. So it wasn't so much about the output, what I was doing. It was all about how do we make radio bigger. And then what I did is I finished there in uh, 1983, went off to the university, went off to the army. And I finished army and I applied for what is then Radio Port Natal. It was 1986. And I applied and I was immediately uh, appointed to do the afternoon show. I was lucky enough that someone had just left. And I never forget the very first day that I stood there in front of a microphone and I was in real radio. And I stood back and I thought, yes, I'm in radio. The tension, the excitement was, was incredible. And I made a decision at that point that every single day when I went on the air, I'd do exactly the same thing. And I did. I'd stand back, I'd get the show going, I'd stand back, I'd have a look at, I'd have a look at the turntables, I'd have a look at the reel-to-reels, then they became CD players, they became cart machines, what have you, and then they became screens. But every single day, I made sure that once I got the show started, I stood up and said, yes, I'm in radio. And the reason being is because it was a dream of mine to be involved in radio. But the moment I joined Real Radio, I was put in a situation where the radio station and the condition of the SABC at that stage was absolutely horrifying. It was paranoid, a bit like it is now. Absolutely paranoid. So I made a decision at that point, I'd have to change it from the inside. The following year, I was appointed to do the breakfast show, and I basically stayed there for the rest of my radio career until I left Talk Radio uh, 702. That was 1985. In 1986, I saw where radio was going, and I didn't want to be part of it. And I thought the best way to do is to change it from the inside, and that is to target community radio stations and uh, campus radio stations and try and impart what I had learned into radio. And so what I did is I founded The Edge. And that is basically what it looks like at the moment. I broke it up into four categories. Basically, the philosophy of radio, which doesn't change, the psychology of the listener, how do you understand the person that you are communicating to? Preparing the product, the basics behind how do you make something work before it goes on air. And the last point is brilliant execution. How do you define yourself against your peers and how do you find yourself against the opposition? And I put it up and the whole idea was to get community and campus radio stations involved. Next thing I realized, there's an incredible uptake by Commercial radio stations, professional broadcasters, former allies of mine, friends of mine, colleagues of mine, they were taking us and they were using it. Until eventually I found out that some guy in the United States was using it and he was actually designed a course where he was using my content and he was charging for it. So I pulled it off air, which is possibly the worst thing to do. But anyway, it's back up and that's what it looks like. The best way if you want to find it is to go to Twitter, type in the hashtag the Radio Edge, and you'll find it there. It's free. Use it. I'll 
put it up a little bit later towards the end in case you want to catch all the details. So, once I'd finished and I said to myself, okay, it's up, I got sucked back into radio, East Coast Radio asked me to join them again, so I went into breakfast show, but now I've got a problem. I've been telling radio this is how they should be doing things. I get sucked back into radio, it's a different kettle of fish. I was very lucky because the program manager at the time, Naveen Singh, was a former producer of mine, and he had great vision. And he teamed me up with a guy called Travis Bishan, who was my producer and my creative partner, creative genius. And the rest of the team understood what it was that I had in mind. And I said to Naveen, if we're going to do this, we can't be music-driven, it has to be speech-driven. And we have to do what I've been telling you on what they need to do. He said, go for it. Did it work? In a nutshell, yes. We went on to garner the bulk of the station's almost two million listeners. And we won a number of awards, not only for online content, uh, not only for on-air content, but online content as well. And I'll point to that a little bit later on. So it worked. And then in 2009, I left. I hung my headphones for the final time because I knew where radio was going at that point. I knew what was going to impact on radio like nothing else before. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put into context before I get to that. This was the past context. This is what radio looked like up until about 2001. Here was the event, call it radio, call it sport, call it news, whatever it was. The radio station was responsible then for mediating it. What we'd do is we'd take them, we'd aggregate content, we'd put it together in a package, and we would send it out to everyone. And then they would hang on our every word, and they would listen to us because we were the authority. And information would trickle back from them, very small information. To give you an idea, I was listening to an air check of Capital Radio from the early 80s the other day. And Alan Mann, the breakfast show host, had a feature called The Tricky Trio. It played short excerpts of three songs in a row. Short excerpts. For example, it plays something such as Three Dog Nights, Joy to the World. He'll play Tender is Alive by Jackson Brown and Night Train by Steve Winwood. And the whole idea was to try and identify what was the word that linked all three of them. And then, as he was reading out, he'd say, now I'm going to give you the answer from two weeks ago. Why did he give the answer from two weeks ago? Because that's how long it took for a postcard to get to Port St. John's, down in what was then Transkei. That was the feedback that the audience would give. So the continual reminder of, I'm listening to you, this is what I think, didn't exist outside of the telephone call. So that is what it was like until about 2001, 2002. This is the current context. It's a mess. All right? The content, the event that the radio station would previously mediate and pass on to the consumers being accessed by the consumer directly. More importantly, there are other places where the consumers are getting content. And also what they're doing is they are speaking to each other. They're not facing the radio. They're not sitting in. They're not listening to the radio station. They are getting on with their own thing. And radio's on the inside saying, hey, what about me? What about me? What about me? We're not going to go back to the past context. The best we can actually hope for is this. Very little change in terms of the consumer, but we are accessing the same content that they're accessing, but we're doing it better than they are. We are also connecting directly with our consumers. We're not just sending it out there, this mass product, and just hoping that it's going to hit everyone. We are making sure that we connect with them and they connect back with us. That is critical. And how are we going to do it? We are going to capitalize on what is upsetting everything. 
And what is driving this upset? What is driving this disintermediation? What drives social media? And what drives social media? Human nature. I've got Technoboff sitting there. The thing is, techn no, it's not technology. It's human nature. Because human nature without technology is just technology. Technology requires human nature to interact with it, to activate it. A screwdriver is only a screwdriver because somebody wants to do DIY with it. Otherwise, it's just a piece of metal. So the technology is made the technology because people want to use it. And people want to use it because of human nature. So what I've done is I've decided to come up with what I call the human nature matrix to try and break down human nature into something that we can package. Because this human nature is the source of your content. Everyone is looking for content. You're not saying, okay, content, 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 content. It's in human nature you'll find your content. First of all, we are social animals. Human, natures, human beings are by nature social animals. We exist in a social construct. We want to interact with each other. It's critical. We're not like some animals that are loners. We exist, ever since humans have existed, we've existed in groupings of people. Importantly, attached to that, we desire the affirmation of our peers. We don't just exist in a social grouping. We look for some kind of connection with people. We look for that affirmation from our peers to say, you're doing a good job. It's inside us when you think about it, your work context. Any kind of socializing, you try your best to do something where you're going to get that affirmation or recognition by your peers. It's important, it's the recognition that we are part of that social unit. We like to know that everything's going to be okay. We are hopeful creatures. Alexander Pope said, hope springs eternal from the human breast. We like to know that there's going, there is going to be a tomorrow, and we like to know that everything is going to be okay. We look for opportunities to improve our condition. We're not very happy with our lot at the moment. We want to improve things. And that improvement is within the social constructs. So in other words, we want to improve our condition inside the grouping that we're in, and also our social grouping compared to others. And aligned to that, if necessary, this could be at the expense of others. We are not naturally altruistic beings. We like to think we are, but we're not. Now, those, in a way, are the basics of human nature. That is the source of all your content that you're going to do. And what I've done is decided to break it down into a, into a strap line. It's at the bottom. Hopefully you can read it. It says, social animals searching for affirmation, security, and an improvement of circumstance, if necessary, at the expense of others. In a nutshell, if you could define human nature, it is that. But it doesn't help knowing that. The real content they're looking for, the real source of content, is inside of all of that and is what ties it together, and is what has been driving poetry, um, storytelling, the greatest novels in the world, the greatest movies in the world, have all tapped into something that links all of those things together. And here it is here. On this piece of paper, 
this piece of paper and what is on here is the key to compelling content. The key to taking those five components of human nature and turning into something that people are going to connect with. Here. And this is when I'm going to deviate slightly from the presentation because I'd like to get someone, imagine these were, for example, the Metro Music Awards or something. And I would actually get someone who is suitably glamorous, who looks absolutely fetching in a little black dress and painted nails, hair done beautifully, seam stockings, high heels, stilettos, just the right height, so you teared off slightly. So I'm looking for someone who's actually going to help me with that. And yes, here we go. Give me a hand with this one. I want you to imagine that you are announcing the name of a winner of a competition. And when I say it, I want you to say, and the answer to compelling content is, sorry, the secret to compelling content is. Can you say that? You ready? Are you, no, 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 Very important time. Very important time, all right? A lot of people, their whole life depends on what's written on this piece of paper, all right? <coughs> Remember, the secret to compelling content is, all right, and... Is read out. Tension. All right. Thank you very much. Big <laughs> round of applause. Right. Everything about that little thing was designed to raise the level of tension. The whole idea of changing the fact that this was going along fine and suddenly I stopped. Then it's a question of what on earth was I talking about. Then it's a question of building up as to who I want to stand up, so is it going to be me? There's a certain element of discomfort in the room because we're doing this kind of strange thing. I hope he doesn't choose me. I That's all tension. It is the tension between all of those things that drives the greatest literature, that drives the most endearing moments in movies. If you think about it, it is the tension in the fact that you're looking for opportunities at the expense of others that drives warfare. It is the competition for resources that is actually driven by a, compa a component in human nature that is pushed by tension into action. If you are looking for content, you'll find it within the tension between things such as our desire for affirmation from our peers and things that are expensive other people. So in other words, what you can do is you can step forward and you say something, let's say for example at a function, and you, someone is about to say something, you step in and you say, no, actually, and you cut them off. There's tension. And because it's human nature, it exists across all demographics because it remains something fundamentally human. So, what is needed then, if we're going to tap into the tension, we're going to tap into human nature, <coughs> And we are going to use that because that drives what is distant to meeting radio. How do we get our listeners back? Well, first of all, we have to completely rethink terminology. And the first one is listener. If you're still talking about a listener, you're talking about an outdated form of radio. What you should be thinking about is user. Because you want to create content that people can use. Not what people are listening to. They're no longer just sitting down listening to the radio. They're doing various other things. So you need to create something that they can use. Also, you need to give them value. When I speak to, 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 to radio talent, uh, and one of the first things I say to them is that every time you open your mouth, you have to give the listener or the user value. It doesn't help if you're going to 
go on air and you're going to give me a time check because I've got to watch. You don't tell me which station you listen to. I suppose you have to because I know what it is because I've selected you. Don't tell me it's a Tuesday. I know it's a Tuesday. Don't tell me it's a Sunday day. I can see it's a Sunday day. Do something else. Create tension, but give something that is valuable to me. Thirdly, presenters. The whole concept of presenters, as far as I'm concerned, is outdated. And I see it. I go into radio stations and I see someone and they'll stack up four songs in a row. Then they'll go on and they go into Facebook, Snapchat, what have you. If you're going to play five songs in a row, when you come out of those five songs in a row, you've had 20 minutes to think about something. When you open your mouth and you say something, I'm going to have to sit down. I'm so shocked at what you tell me. It's just so drawing, crunchingly brilliant. And when they come out of five songs in a row and they say, ah, that was such and such and such and such. <laughs> Is that the best you can do? No. More importantly, what they need to be, they need to be able to, they need to be a creator, they need to be an aggregator, they need to be a mediator, they need to be a differentiated authority. When I think Roger Good, I think an authority on music. I think of various other people and I automatically look for an authority. Are they a specialist in, let's say for example, sport? Are they a specialist in family conditions? Are they a specialist in something that I can connect with? Because if you are not a specialist, if you're not an authority in anything, you shouldn't be on radio. Because I can get a link monkey. I can pay someone absolutely nothing to back announce three or four songs in a row. To be able to aggregate content, create content, to be a mediator, that takes talent. And all the technology is out there to do it. Also have to be a storyteller. The greatest stories in the world, all about human nature, all about the tension in human nature. Become a storyteller, and you can actually help people connect with what you do. It's been proven year after year after year, decades, centuries after centuries. We've been telling stories for centuries. The world's most prolific religions are all based on stories. So you can't tell me that storytelling is something that there has no place on radio. If you're a format jock, I'm sorry, but you're history. Remember Betty Sue? Right in the beginning, the picture in the front, she was leaning in. That is what you need to do. You need to encourage your listeners to lean in. You don't want whatever you're producing to go into the background. You have to pull them in. Focus on the tension, pull them in, get them to lean in. And you should be creating content. Not generating content. Difference between the two, if I retweet something, I'm generating content. If I embed a YouTube video, I'm generating content. If I do something, film it, put it on YouTube, embed it, then I'm creating content. People are looking for creative content. So, we know that we've got to tap into human nature. We know that we're looking for the tension in human nature. We know what it is that we have to do. Now, how do we do it? There are so many different ways to do it. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. But I'm going to suggest four questions you should ask yourself before putting any kind of idea or any kind of application to content. The first one is, is the content real? It sounds a bit bizarre, but think about it from this point of view. If something is really formatted, it is not real because real life is not formatted. Real life is messy. Real life doesn't follow plans. You want to get from A to point B in your car, and some guy cuts in front of you, he's messed up your plans. So in other words, your content has to be real. The content has to recognize the things messy. I was working with a radio station 
not so long ago. And I was speaking to, to the woman who was on air. So I said, why did you play that song? Why did you play that song? So she says, well, because it's scheduled. I said, that's not a reason to play a song. There has to be a reason. I, I want you to project this image that you are walking into the studio with a whole pile of CDs, and there's a story attached to every single song that you're going to put on air. So in other words, if you say something like, you know, um, I see Brad and, and Angelina have just had a new baby. And I bet you, if I was to pick up Brad's iPod or something like that, one of the first songs that will be on the top of his playlist, playlist list, for example, is this one. And you play Stevie Wonder's Isn't She Lovely, for example. Something like that. But make it a story as to why you put something. This is the reason why you put something in. All right? Is the content format inclusive? When I say inclusive, I mean, is the language that you're using, is it something that includes the listener? I could actually talk about the use of uh, graphene nanotechnology to direct intervention towards um, uh, cancer tumors, for example. But it's not really going really to resonate with most people except those who are interested in, uh, in nanotechnology or the use of graphene, for example. So is your content inclusive in the language that it uses? Is it inclusive in the way that it actually talks directly to your user? Thirdly, can the user engage with it? This is very much about the structure, the physical structure of the content. When I say engage with it, let me give you a basic thing. All right. Woman goes into local checkers. It's a joke. Woman goes into local checkers. She goes to the checkout counter, puts a basket of stuff onto the checkout counter. The guy's sitting there and he starts scanning it. Little dinky of wine. Blip. Bridget Jones' diary DVD, blip. Meal for one, blip. Two tins of cat food, blip. So he looks up and he says, sorry, man, I <laughs> don't want to pry, if you don't mind me saying, but uh, are you single? So she looks down at stuff, she says, that's amazing. Can you tell all of that just because of the stuff I've actually bought? So no, it's because you're like, you really are ugly. It's inclusive. We spoke about checkers. The content that was actually inside the stuff that you can relate to. But more importantly, you can engage with it. You engage with it because as I was telling you the story, you were going along with it. And you were creating expectation. The punchline, we upend expectation. And that is why you laugh. You laugh because you release tension. The top comedians understand Tension. They understand how to build up expectation, how to up in expectation, and that release of tension, which is laughter. That's the basic form of content that is real, a format that is inclusive, and can the user engage with it? Can the user share it? Can you share a joke? Yes. The chances are you can tell that joke. Nowadays, there are so many ways that we can share content. The question is, is the content that you're creating shareable? If you're broadcasting live and only live, then no, because the chances are what you say and what you do is going to be misinterpreted. So if you think to yourself, I know that human behavior is such that we're social animals, we search for affirmation, 
uh, security and improvement of circumstance if necessary at the expense of others. We understand there's tension involved in that. If I can create content that taps into that, it's real. It speaks to my user. More importantly, they can engage with it. So in terms of, for example, competition, can they engage with it? And can they share it? At the end of the day, can they share it? If you can do that, then you are sitting on a treasure trove of possibilities. You're not tied down by having to rely on other people for content. It's easy to find content. Now, what's important is you need to get people, the correct talent, who can do all of that across multiple platforms. Easy. Or is it? It is. If the willingness is there, if the capacity to do so is there, I was speaking to, to a, a, a program manager of a radio station, I won't mention it, and he was saying the biggest problem he has is that his presenters go on air, they play some music, they have a bit of a chat in this time, they read out a couple of things from Twitter, and they think that is their job. And I said to him, have you spoken to them about creating content on other platforms? They don't want to do that because they don't see it as their job. If you don't see it as your job, then you are instantly replaceable. It is your job. If you're a content creator, you must be able to create content over multiple platforms. You should know basic video editing, basic audio editing. You should be able to write. That is one of the reasons why I think journalists will become more prevalent on radio stations, because they understand how to do all of that. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a couple of, of, of examples of, of, of what we did a couple of years ago. When I was with uh, East Coast Radio, um, I think it was in 2007, I think it was 2007, uh, I was approached by, by the program manager and said, uh, you have to create a blog. I said, okay, that's fine. And I was particularly excited about it because what it did is it gave us an opportunity to take a lot of content that we would like to have done on radio, but we can't do because it's a visual, because it's not a visual medium. So what we did is I said to the rest of the guys, if we're going to do anything, we're going to create original content, and we're going to use it as an opportunity to do stuff that we can't do on radio. But the philosophy of, this, of the show remains the same. So this is, we created something called the comic caption. Now this is, this is a picture of a child about to be eaten by a crocodile. All right? um, during the process, before she gets eaten, before blood spurts out everywhere on the side of it, she is going to make sure that those, both of those two teeth are the same length? Of course not. It is just a model, and the child is sitting there, and it's all very, very funny. So we said, okay, it's fine. What we're going to do now is we are going to take that, and we're going to put a speech bubble on it, or a thought bubble. And we're going to put it on the blog, and we're going to ask people to suggest captions. So what we're doing is we're not putting up something they can laugh at. We're putting up something they can engage with. And bearing in mind that they like to outdo everyone else, they like to the affirmation of their peers, this has to be visual. So they'll type something, it'll go on, other people will see it, other people will react to it, and at the end of it, we choose the funniest one and we put it up the following day. But what we've done is we've teased her. It's a shocking picture on the blog this morning. Poor little child, must be a little thing. She must be about two years old. It looks like, and she's in the jaws of a crocodile. You don't want to go there if you are easily upset by graphic violence. Because then we know, human nature, they're going to go and have a look at it, are they not? So they're going to have a look at see the comic caption, and then the captions start coming in. And this is the kind of stuff that we'd actually get. Uh, Thanks, Mom. I've always wanted a cost sleeping bag. Uh, this vet's job is not all that it's crocked up to be. And my mom said, I must wear my crocs today. And then we realized, and this thing just took off. And then we realized, now wait a minute, but what happened? There'd be one winner. And he said, no, wait a minute. 
Let's make three winners or three suggestions that people could vote for them. So now his offering was happening at a different level. And then we made contact with a guy called Aja. And uh, he has a, a website called Aja's Photosoup. He's Dutch. And what he does is he creates some of the most amazing forms of Photoshop you'll find anywhere on the net. I think you'll see a lot of his stuff going around at the moment. So here are three examples. The one on the right, Tony realized that he wonders are playing with Sherry's makeup. Second one says, hi, sweetie, I got that special chair for your mother-in-law, and they threw the cushion in for free. So for your mother, threw the cushion in for free. And the last one, because every dog should have at least one good square meal a day. So these are all winners in the comic caption. Did it work? Yes, we went on to win not one, not two, but three SA Blog Awards because of the quality of the content, the number of hits that we got, the number of downloads, because every single one of those things was then hit with the logo, of the, sh of the show's logo, and people could download it. They could download it. What could they do with it then? They could share it. They could share it, but the station's brand and the show's brand was on that. So this was one of the examples of where we took the whole philosophy of people engaging with content. They were creating stuff. They were sharing stuff. And we were tapping into human nature. We are tapping into that tension between aspirations, what it is that people want, the realities of life. And we found an opportunity to give people an opportunity to actually engage with their radio station, specifically with our show. So that is very briefly an example. There's my contact details. If you want to have any more details, whatsoever, any more information, please give me a call. There again is the uh, hashtag. The Radio Edge, follow that on Twitter and I'll take you directly through to the, uh, the Radio Edge and please use the stuff. Questions? How are we doing time-wise? We don't have much time. Maybe okay. we can just take two quick ones. Two quick questions. Any questions in the room? Is either a good thing or is it a bad thing? Are you sure? Okay, then I think we'll keep it to chatting. All right, sorry. Yes, Anise. Good, thanks, Anise. Thank you. So, content. Every, everybody knows content is king. Yeah. And this morning we heard about how uh, the industry is just sort of dumbed down, dumbed down, dumbed down, and like, why is this happening? Yeah. Why doesn't anybody love us anymore? And isn't it obvious that talent is required to produce this? Why can't the rest of the industry see that? Why do we keep debating this? Why, look, why, do, uh, look, why, why uh, do the bean counters come in? Uh, look, and automate the playlist and say, we don't need you to it, it. It both frustrates me. It, it gets back to early on, I said right at the beginning, I have this love-hate relationship because I've... Uh, back in 2010, I told Omar Essek, head of Kahiso Radio at that stage, that, that radio stations have to become multimedia hubs. And he, he nodded his head and whatever. Eventually they are, but it was a bit late. It's, we're all playing catch-up at the moment. And I think what it is, is it boils down to the fact that talent costs money. No, it, it, it does, and he said it does, but it, it, it's... It, I know, but I'm, I think I'm preaching to the converted. I'm, I am preaching to the converted. The, I, 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 don't, I really don't know what it is. It, it's, it's, I think it's the failure of a lot of radio stations to understand the fact that, that talent is human capital. And if you get the right people and you upskill them, and, and uh, to give you, I'm not going to mention names here. I went into to one radio station a while ago, and the, 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 uh, the breakfast show was losing listeners at a chronic rate. 
And I was called in to, to assess the talent. And the program manager said to me, you know, I think I understand why we're losing listeners just after seven. It's because we're coming out of the news with a B1 instead of an A3. I said, since when do music content become vitamins, for heaven's sake? And I said, no, you know the reason why you're losing listeners? It's because your, your presenter, the guy who's hosting the flagship show, has all the personality of a soap dish. He's not connecting with his audience. He doesn't know how to create content. And so he's a great format jock, but they were not willing to upskill him. And that was the big failure. On the, and he didn't last. He's, he's gone and they got someone else in. But if the talent is there, the potential talent is there, and you upskill them, not only will you benefit as a radio station, they benefit. I mean, everyone benefits, but it costs money. No, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we're so being told, we see magazine adverts and that kind of thing, this is what you should look like, and look at yourself in the mirror and say, that's not me. There's tension for you. But we want to be that. There's more tension. Tap into it. Tap into it. That is where you find the content, in that tension. Cool.